0: Hi everybody. Welcome to episode number 36. We made it actually 36 episodes, which is astonishing uh, of the Fitness Devil podcast. If you're actually watching this video, this is Andrew Coates right here. I'm waving here. This is Dean, this creature curly hair looking thing here. Uh, If you are just audio then completely ignore that. So we've got Brad Dieter on today. He's a PhD, really brilliant and awesome fitness professional. He's got his hands in a lot of uh, academic research, but also practical systems to help clients. So today we're going to talk about the future of the fitness industry, how technology will shape it, uh, some talk about AI, artificial intelligence. He gets into his his hypothesis about intolerances uh, and how people are driven to them. you got to listen and check that out. He mentions uh, DNA testing and its validity or perhaps lack thereof. We've got a few great quotes in here. Uh, you can't hate yourself lean. you got to check out what he meant by that. And a pretty healthy t- discussion about internet arguments and why they're a big fucking waste of time. So <laughs> enjoy the episode. It's actually one of our best ever. And, uh, and stay tuned.
1: Shut up and sit down. <laughs>
0: Hey everyone welcome back to the podcast uh i'm andrew coates uh dean Guido is here with me if you're watching on video you'll see us we're gonna do videos now on youtube but uh we're not actually that important when it comes to this it's always our guests and uh, we managed to pull a lot of really well-educated people somehow and we got another one today we got brad Dieter joining us he's a phd in exercise physiology Although he's far too youthful looking and in reality to have achieved as much education as he has, uh, which is pretty impressive. So, uh, Brad, thanks for coming on. Uh, I was hoping that you could introduce yourself, sort of your full academic history and uh, your role with ScienceDrivenNutrition.com.
1: Yeah, well, I guess I'll start with the disclaimer that I'm obviously the smallest person here right now. So, uh, You have the most books in the background, too.
2: Yeah,
1: so that's... That's the good juxtaposition. Um, yeah, so my background, I won't go too far deep into it and waste a lot of time. But basically, I uh, did my undergrad, um, decided I didn't want to go to med school, went into research, did my master's in essentially exercise physiology where I focused mostly on uh, you know, musculoskeletal. Mechanics and biomechanics, and then decided I was more interested in physiology um, and kind of more disease and, and how exercise impacts disease. <clears throat> so I did a PhD in uh, basically how exercise you know affects the molecular mechanisms of disease, and I focused in uh, in diabetes and diabetic cardiomyopathy. And then I did a postdoc fellowship um, in diabetic kidney disease. So I just make the joke that I just went South in the body, uh, (laughs) and, and, uh, finished that up about, Oh gosh, a little over a year ago. Um, and I'm currently part of my academic life as I'm a research scientist. Um, so I do, you know, biomedical research work for, for part of my life. And then I, uh, also, over the last several years, um, have been a co-owner in, in running uh, Eat to Perform, and running my my right. basically my personal blog is Science Driven Nutrition, where all the stuff that I am interested in, but my wife doesn't really care enough to hear about, I, <laughs> I, I write it and uh, and put it online for people. So, yeah, those are those are kind of the big things I'm doing, and kind of where I've come from, and where I am now. <laughs>
0: That sounds like the combination of several several different people and all of their pursuits. When we met, I was sort of blown away with just how many things you were involved with very seriously. So it's they, just sort of awe-inspiring.
2: That's what happens <laughs> when you're in school for, like, how old are you? I
1: just turned 30. Just <laughs> turned 30 as a PG. He's a baby, right? <laughs> well, I'm 30, but I don't... You're a baby.
2: I, I only, yeah. My schooling is far less advanced.
1: That well, just I, means you spent your 20s doing fun things and not yeah, stuck in the uh, the library yeah. or in a basement somewhere.
2: I, I, I was stuck playing football, getting He's told taking, C's get degrees. hits to
0: the head. Yeah,
2: C's <laughs> get degrees and they don't they don't get you into PhD school. So if I wanted to, I, I had the rude awakening. I had to go upgrade. So I just learned my PhD on the internet. So (laughs) I'm like just as smart as you on the internet. So just just (laughs) no certificate. A a Google (laughs) university degree. A Google PhD.
0: There's a lot of those floating around.
2: Yeah. So what are you working on currently? So just give us a rundown of business, academia, and I guess just more on your brand, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. um, I'll start with probably the more relatable stuff. So at each perform, um, we basically, and kind of the way I describe it is, you know, right now, there's kind of two ways that people approach kind of nutrition and exercise coaching, essentially, is you've, you've got the really passive systems like Fitbit, MyFitnessPal. They basically just have – they just – you can put in your data um, and they kind of say, hey, maybe, you know, walk more or maybe try to eat this calorie count. And that's really all they do. Um, and then you've got the, like, the very high-end intensive coaching with, you know, individual coaches – um, you know that are very kind of interactive. They don't usually they don't have a whole lot of formal data collection. Um, you know, some people do, and it's kind of a high dollar point and it's high communication. And so what we've done at each perform um, on a high level is we've taken both those and merged those together. So we have all of the passive data collection, you know, the MyFitnessPal data, the Fitbit data, the Apple data, uh, the Garmin data, and then we have we've built custom coaching software that then allows us to take the coaching and apply it to, to those data things um, and have you know kind of built out this whole system of how do we take humans and technology and leverage the strengths of both and really put them together in kind of a powerful system um, so that's what we're doing there and that's been really cool to see you know we kind of built this whole thing from the ground up so we've kind of got to customize everything we've done and built it around our clients which is um, pretty cool for us. So that's the that's that piece. So we can kind of dive into more of that um, in a little bit. Yeah. On the the academic research side, so my focus is primarily in um, diabetes and end organ complications. So right now we have a lot of different lines of research going. Um, some of it is biomarker development. So how can we take you know proteins or you know any small molecules that are in your blood or your urine and predict how people either basically try to identify people whose disease will progress or won't progress. And are there things that we can tell that differentiate those people? And then we're also trying to develop novel therapies um, for a lot of these, you know, end organ complications of disease. And one of the things that we've learned over the last several years is, you know, we kind of lump disease categories, right? Like we we call heart disease, um, or we call kidney disease. And amongst those, there's actually a lot of different types and so what we're trying to do is phenotype these types and develop targeted therapy so it's kind of like taking steps towards personalized medicine so we do a lot of human studies animal studies very basic you know molecular biology studies to try to figure those things out
0: i just saw a headline and actually i didn't read the article just things have been so busy lately but something about it was in the news how there are actually five different types of diabetes versus two and that, that was just a headline i saw is that true or something to that or is that kind of the news being sensationalistic um, bullshit
1: really? you know i think i think that i don't really have a super solid answer for how many different types there are um i think you know it's one of those things that and this is very similar to how science progresses is we we take this thing we see and we slap a label on it um and then as we start to understand more we start to find the nuances in it um you know a good analogy for kind of this field would be you know training right is you can say okay there's strength training but then under strength training there's you know powerlifting style training there's more volume style training there's all this other sorts of stuff so you know even the like the type two diabetes moniker um you know people have different manifestations of that too and so we're starting to try to understand that are there really five types i, I don't really know i don't think we've uh gone super far down that see, hole but i do think there's like a there is a lot of diversity amongst people who have a quote-unquote type 2 diabetes diagnosis see when i heard
2: him explain it, i heard novel approaches and i just thought like with my internet phd um <laughs> a novel approach and like this is held quite strongly by a lot of the world is, is Kia will fix all of it
0: well, actually, that logic into something that I think is a better clarification is because Brad and I talked about this in Spokane and there's this whole, whole debate. There's a, there's a researcher, a but actually, this, okay. is straight up, this is straight up serious. There's a researcher who's been doing a lot of stuff and pushing a lot of like keto as a cancer cure very unilaterally, which is very dubious because people think of cancer. I'll use the example. Anyone who's got like, oh, the government suppressing a cure for cancer or cannabis and all this kind of crazy wants- crap. And they're failing to actually appreciate the fact that there are a really large number of very different types of cancers that manifest in really different ways. And not all of them are, some of them are fueled by carbohydrates, some of them are fueled by fat, Brad, You could probably do a lot more justice to that explanation.
1: Yeah, you know, that's, that's one of the hard parts to really try to get across to people is, you know, cancer is it's a blanket term for a lot of different types of diseases, right? Each one has its own genotype, its own phenotype, its own metabolism. You know, some are fueled by carbohydrates. Some are fueled by fatty acids. Some are fueled by ketones. Some are fueled by like, they will take the, the nucleic acids that are floating around in your blood and will metabolize those. So, you know, it's, it's just like saying, you know, basically just giving people ketones or having a ketogenic diet is going to have any effect on their you know blanket statement cancer is is really kind of super myopic in my opinion
0: that's good and I like stuff like this because this gives people interesting takeaways for the stuff that they kind of hear floating around but they may not necessarily have the the knowledge or the context to be able to understand and people they, they seek simple solutions they love one simple answer and they want to believe there's this one thing or that like I said the government is suppressing this is worldwide conspiracy because <laughs> pharmaceutical companies won't make money off of curing all cancers uh, because people who study cancer and their families don't ever get cancer or die of it like some of the logic there's a little speeches. and there's going to be one listener here who's going to be freaking the living hell out. <laughs> no, it's there's a, there's a conspiracy. Like, no, there's- I yeah, mean, that's uh, all on
1: Netflix. Fucking yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, the real answer there is we're just too dumb to figure it out. Yeah, we don't. There's <laughs> we just we haven't figured it out. There, there was like
2: someone who's saying like we don't even know half the CNS shit that people are talking about. Like we don't even know like a fifth of what's going on in the brain. And the same thing with all this shit. We could bring smart people on like you, and you're 30. Hopefully, by 50, you'll find something. Way smarter than what's out now, and hopefully
0: I'm still alive by then. Yeah, it's like we just had Sarah Andrew's Ashman. 40,
2: yeah, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so Sarah Ashman <laughs> was
0: on, and uh, I actually mentioned Sarah when we were talking. And so Sarah's on the forefront of a lot of gut health, gut microbiome stuff, and like, that stuff is an industry, as a study is in its infancy too. So there's a whole lot of stuff there that we just don't know yet. So
2: okay, we need to talk about AI. So need, give, them, give them the AI one, because we kind of brought up stuff about emerging technology, and I, I would say that you're kind yeah. of on the forefront of integrating a lot of that stuff. So. Yeah. yeah,
0: And that's why I, this is actually a lot about what this episode is going to be about. Um, like A lot of what you described working on within your business, it really got me thinking about the future of our fitness industry, uh, particularly when it comes to nutrition. You know, companies, emerging technologies work to really disrupt the industry as it's been for a while. And what you described sort of sounds along those lines. So what technologies do you see changing the way our industry functions uh, to serve the end consumer better, and, and how will they change it?
1: Oh, that's a big question. And what we're trying to figure out, right, that's that's ultimately the my exit strategy in life, right, is figuring out that and then uh, retire on a boat somewhere. Um, You know, I think it's, I think it's twofold. One is, as we start to bring in, you know, we'll use the word artificial intelligence, because that's, that's just what people understand. But as we start to bring in more objective mathematical tools to understanding a lot of what human behavior actually is, um, I think that's going to start to illuminate a lot of things that we don't understand, right? So, for example, you know, we collect all this data on our our clients and what we see people actually doing in the real world um, and how their bodies are responding in the real world is much different than what you see in the research literature. Um, and that's been very eye-opening for me, right? Is, I mean, I've probably read all the weight loss studies that there are out there. And while those concepts are very crystal clear, when you try to take those same things and apply them to the real world is they really break down. Um, And they break down in a very big fundamental way that changes how you approach things. So I think as we can start to unleash a lot of, you know, some of these AI tools, so to speak, on real world data, um, we're going to learn a lot of things that we did not know. Um, So that would be the first thing is I think it's going to kind of remove a lot of our biases as as coaches. Um, And one of the big things that I kind of push back against is, You know, this idea that if people aren't losing weight, it's because our clients are lying to us, right? There's kind of this big theme of, hey, if you're saying you're eating a thousand calories and you're not losing weight, you're not really eating that. Um, That's the type of kind of bias we have from our approach is how can real world data help kind of remove our bias of how we approach those type of people? Um, So that's kind of one example. And then the way I kind of view it is using these tools to kind of, leverage our ability to help people and remove our bias. And they're going to allow humans to do a lot more of the caring piece, right? Because if you think about your relationship with your clients is all this information and tools to get your clients results is really, really helpful. But if you don't actually care about your clients and you don't have the time and the energy to actually, you know, connect with them on an emotional human level, then you're going to really miss a lot of the opportunity to change people's lives. So that's kind of the way I would hope that it ends up being is these these ai tools can kind of give us more leverage and give us more powerful interventions that are more effective and actually take the burden off of us to try to solve these problems and we can do a lot more of the human interaction um so that's kind of the way i would hope to see it go now is that the way it's going to go I don't know. I don't know if humans are are capable of doing that kind of stuff or not. And I think like right
2: now, even if you look at Fitbit, it's kind of all the technology is going where the money's at and where people are going to be at right now. So I don't even know if people want that. They want to know how many steps they're taking so that they can get a little bit more and then they're going to market off that and then we're going to be stuck in a loop for 10 years. And Fitbits, Fitbits.
0: here's what I kind of feel about Fitbits. Fitbit, it can be a very valuable piece of information or, or step trackers or whatever, but people more often than not will buy the Fitbit. Basically, the way that they buy gym memberships. That's the big gesture that alleviates the emotional distress of how they've been feeling. But it comes with no actual exertion or real oh. effort. So it's it's sort of a, a symbol of, hey, look at me. I did this big thing. But it's not the thing that's actually going to change your life or get the weight off. And what they have to do is they actually have to go out and do the effort. But again, just buying that technology or buying that membership they feel like, hey, I've done something big and that's what it takes to lose weight. No, fuck no. You actually have to like exercise. Well, and you have to I-, I wanted to go more on the nutrition. lines
2: of, of asking you kind of, so we talked about even the Fitbit and why people want that. How can we make the stuff you're talking about? Because you're talking about better metrics, better systems, AI, doing more. How do we get the greater community involved with that so that, Companies want to build out that shit so they can make money because that's a li- literally what's going to come down to is is there going to be a want and a desire for it? And scientists and trainers aren't a big enough market to make that move happen. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, um, you know, part of me says I don't want anybody, you know, stepping on my turf right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to retire on a boat, man. Uh, you know, the the, the like, question there <laughs> is like, uh, and and I think you asked the right question is and this is kind of my underlying argument of how we solve the bigger kind of obesity problem and is, is a value structure, right? Is how do you from the bottom up build this value structure? Um, And there's, there's kind of a few ways you can do it is you can start at the top and make this a very large financial industry um, that can somehow use that to drive consumer behavior. You know, a good analogy is, I mean, look at the NFL, right? Like, that's a huge money-making organization that starts with money at the top and then drives consumer behavior of, you know, get your cable package, buy your Bud Light, hang out on Sundays, you know, go to Buffalo Wild Wings. Um, Or there's the other approach of how can we change the value structure at the bottom to where people actually value something and then you can build the financial institution on top of it. Um, And so it's, I mean, if you look historically, it, it usually works from the top down. Um, but I think if you actually want to enact some sort of large social change, you have to start from the bottom up. And how we do that second piece is the like the Nobel Prize winning question. Yeah, that's your boat, man. That's, think- your yacht. that's your that's your that's your that's your two million dollar yacht
2: uh, yacht in the Mediterranean, and you're making money.
0: Well, I think we're probably in the best situation in our history for that what you described from bottom up because. Uh, And again, it's driven by the connectivity of social media and just the general connectivity of the internet. So people are more connected than ever to function on that level and... I don't have an idea. What it's well, it, take it goes
2: back to the same shit we talk about in, in a lot of our podcasts, just to kind of catch you up. Is we always talk about Instagram stars and the charlatans, blah, 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 blah. But those are the people with the most influence. And it usually has to come down to someone or a group of people that have a way larger influence on the greater community to kind of elicit and demand those changes. Because <laughs> let's just say Brad wants to change it from the bottom up. And Jillian Michaels wants to change it from the bottom up. I think Jillian Michaels is going to get a little bit more traction. Nothing against you, but <laughs> she, she's built that. You know what I mean? And it, those people aren't doing those things. It's the Dr. Oz's who are driving that. And that's kind of where you have to flip the script. I have no answer for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the, little, the Spider-Man quote, right, from Uncle Ben, where he says, with great power comes great responsibility. There you go. He's, oh, sorry, man. He you know, like, worships, worships Spider-Man. People are are in positions of influence in positions to actually make large changes. Um, One, I think a lot of these people think they have more influence over substantial changes in societal behavior than they actually do, right? The, you know, the super fit person on Instagram, who's got 10 million followers, sure, they can sell some supplements, but they're not actually, you know, building anything of value to change people. Um, And I think the other thing is, when they do get into those positions, they need to understand that the message they craft can matter if they do it correctly, um, and that needs to be a little bit more, a little bit more focused on value driven from from the outset and not financial driven. That that is the
0: that's the problem. <laughs> well, the future is going to be really exciting to see. Well, yeah. I, I, we know that technology is going to shape things. Uh, you know, kind of going back to what you're saying about data collection. I wonder if we'll ever get to the point where quite literally people will be, I think they will be paranoid about this, but implanted with chips or like mini processors that link to our nervous system that will actually be able to record a lot of this data. And then what you said about what shows sort of in this, these controlled studies versus what's going on in the real world, you'll get that kind of information from the real world that you can then actually take into you know peer-reviewed research and, and use it. I think we're probably a long way off before we see that uh, augmentation of humans with machine and cybernetics. But I mean, that's a theme we've seen all over science fiction for a really long time. But but it will come, whether or not it will be embraced by society as a whole (laughs) and everybody. Uh, that's a different story, but that's that shit's gonna happen.
2: Well, the second it's, it's like you said, the second that is able to happen and we're able to get those metrics, things are gonna exponentially grow. Because once you start getting that real world data at the level that it needs to, it's just going to expand. Because once it's accessible, the information will just go. It's like when Google opened up all their metrics, and now things are just flooding, and there's they have way too many metrics to even deal with. But it has to start somewhere.
1: Yeah, and you know we've already. S- started going down that road, right? So continuous glucose monitors are starting to be, they're, yep. they're being used by normal people, right? Not just people with diabetes. Um, you've, you know, you've got some of these wearables that are starting to get, you know, a little more advanced that are collecting a little more data. Um, and so we're we're moving in that direction. You know, the big hurdle with large scale, you know, we'll just call it a, you know, like basically collecting biometric data and all this stuff is gonna be, you know, getting it through the FDA. Um and then, you know, then who gets to access that data? Right? Is can a private company put these things out and just collect this data and then what happens? We're gonna run into a lot of issues like that when we start to get into a lot of these health mark markers.
2: Do you think that like and and this is an honest question, because the scientists want that information do you think that information is going to happen regardless and people are going to do with it what they want? And it's going to be a point where certain people are getting ahead of the science just because they have access to the metrics. Cause you can't do anything without FDA approval. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean with the way things are going in, you know, government funding for science right now is private industry is going to, and probably in the next 20 years be leaps and bounds ahead of government. Um, in terms of direct application to people, right now, you know, complete innovation of new technologies and, and new biotech is probably going to be largely driven by, you know, government. So things like next-gen sequencing, you know, all that kind of like new technology will probably be driven more by, you know, government funding, just because there's a lot more risk and yeah. private industry doesn't want to risk that kind of money right now. Um, but the commercialization and application is going to be so much more driven by industry than by government. It's, I mean, we're gonna start to really enter the the wild, wild west in the next twenty years.
2: Is, is that good or bad? And and that's an honest question. And, and seriously, like, I, I'm sure it's it's a little bit of both. But like, what's your take on the, that?
1: Um, it depends on the day, what day of the week you ask me, right? If I've just gotten a grant review back and I'm like, yeah. got it, government, then I'm like, yeah, it's great that the private industry. You know, I think there's my fears are that there's a, lo- there's a lot of times where we get really excited about things and we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the downstream repercussions. Absolutely. Um, and I think private industry sometimes takes things a little bit too far too fast. I mean, Theranos, great example, right? They were a company that kind of promised some things. They got a little bit driven by money. It was a huge fiasco. People are going to prison. <laughs> Billions of dollars were lost. <laughs> like, you know, those are the type of things that you've – when private industry gets involved in financial, you know, gain is the main driver. Is you start to get a lot of things like that. So I think there's there's pros and cons. You know, one is speed of change, and the other one is there's going to be a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. Yeah.
0: Well, let's pivot into something else that uh, you said at the conference. So obviously, I, I recently I just met Brad two weeks ago for the first time at this Inland Empire uh, fitness conference that was hosted by our friend Tim Arndt. And uh, James Krieger presented. We just had James on the podcast. So guys, if you're listening, James and Brad are good friends. James had a really wonderful episode. So that's one of the ones, if, if you're one of Brad's listeners who found us for the first time here, you might really enjoy the episode we did with James. It's a little different from a lot of the other stuff he did. So it's just a few episodes back. Totally worth checking out. And then if you like that, well, well, you can see because we uh, we work hard to bring on some great guests but you described your hypothesis about intolerances in Spokane um, and you said that people are driven to them. Could you explain that and why you feel like this is happening now all of a sudden?
1: Yeah. So I'll put the I'll plant the flag right up front and say a lot of what I'm gonna say is uh, <laughs> is my own thoughts about this and you know some of it's not well supported and this is just kind of me thinking based on some of my experiences and some of my background knowledge is um, a lot of the I would say in the last twenty to thirty years a lot of our dietary approaches have become much more restrictive right is if you kind of look around and think about the last 20 or 30 years of dieting culture, most of them are, let's just remove food, and let's just remove food, and let's remove this food, and then let's, if that's not working, let's remove another food. And so people's diets start to become very, um, very narrow, right? So people are kind of eating the same types of foods. They're removing any potential exposure to a variety of things. And we know that your body, especially your microbiome and your immune system, can adapt to what, it, what, it, what it's exposed to. Um, and so I think when people start to have these super restrictive diets and then they introduce foods they haven't had in a while, that's where a lot of those food intolerances will manifest, right? And if you kind of think about it, there's some literature to support that. So there's there's evidence that kids who – you know, are exposed to things like peanuts or gluten or things like that really early, their likelihood of developing a a food sensitivity or a food allergy later on is is reduced. Um, You know, we do know that if you consume like a very low carbohydrate, high fat, moderate protein diet, your microbiome changes and your ability to digest large amounts of carbohydrates, you know, substantially gets reduced. And so I think a lot of people, you know, when they start to develop these restrictive diets, they're reducing their body's robustness to actually handle a wide variety of, of foods. And I think that that may be one of the reasons we're starting to see a lot more people who've been kind of in the 20-year dieting cycle starting to manifest with more, quote-unquote, food intolerances.
0: That makes sense. That makes tons of sense. I, I suspect as well that, and we, we know this, People like to identify with ideologies. They like to belong to tribes. They like to belong to things. And they like to belong to dietary ideology, but they also like to have. It's you know, when gluten became this big thing, probably what, like seven. Six seven years ago is kind of like when that really blew up, and then a lot of people going around saying that they were gluten intolerant and, and, and uh, <coughs> variations of that. And I think people are self-diagnosing because people like to have—I don't want to say disorders—but they like to have things, and, and they, get,
2: they get primed by it. Like if they buy into that, their brain, like they're being told, and their brain is being primed to be like, "Oh yeah, this is happening, this is happening." Then they just think <laughs> and they they make up things. And that, I'm not saying that they're making up things, but. That goes back to that whole ideology thing, but they're buying into it so much that they, like you said, they're building intolerances because they buy into a system so well that they don't even veer outside of, there's no variability outside of those systems. Well, does that make and, sense?
0: And earlier I mentioned that uh, we had Sarah Ashman on and like, so we'll release yours in about two weeks. So when you're listening to this today, two weeks ago, we had Sarah Ashman on that episode and she actually, like I said, talked about gut microbiome and she talked about exactly what you did and how I think, I think specifically, she said that pregnant women who grow up on farms, uh, th- th- then of course D gets into this crazy thing about Japanese f- pregnancy farm petting zoos and all sorts of weird shit. gonna go back for that. <laughs> so without getting too
2: sidetracked, because we're already already sidetracked, is that to ex- women need to expose no, no. themselves to petting zoos so that yeah. they can be exposed to things. But
0: women okay. who actually are pregnant and are around uh, farms and farm animals and a lot of that sort of stuff, you see almost no incidents of. Uh, most of these food intolerances that are becoming more common. And there were lower rates of autism too, which was kind of interesting. So there's a bunch of stuff that just simply, the kids were growing up, as you said, more robust. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I would say kind of my, to sum up my my thoughts is, you know, one of the things when we try to work with people is our goal is not to build this hyper restrictive, very sensitive human. It's how can we build a robust human who can handle a lot of different things? Yeah um and still get you know results that they're aiming for without trying to make somebody super fragile well and, and people buy into the fact that they're super fragile too
2: does that make sense like when they don't get that variability they just believe that they're super fragile and they, they they're like they can't do anything else
1: Yeah, you know, it's kind of like, you know, one of the ways I think about it, because I spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time doing math and statistics is it's like, (laughs) you know, if you think about like local minimum and maximum, right, is somebody will do something and they'll get in like this valley. And then, you know, anytime they try to move out of that, they just sink right back to the right spot, because they haven't gotten up over the hump to the next, the next place
2: what would be some so and this might be something that's actionable what in your opinion are some actionable strategies to like get over that valley because obviously people are hitting a roadblock somewhere like how would you define that roadblock and how to get past it
1: you know a lot of them are you know I'll I'll kind of give you the most simple answer is take a much longer term view of what you're trying to deal with right so for example when we have clients who come to us who have been eating 1300 calories a day and they're like you know I don't want to diet forever you know, I want to be able to do all these things and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to have to get your calorie intake up and then over the next 6, 8, 12 weeks, your body weight's going to fluctuate. It's going to go up a few pounds, right? You're going to be, whether that's fat mass or glycogen storage or whatever it is, you've got to kind of get over that initial hurdle and take a much longer view of the issue. Um, I think a lot of people get focused in like, I have to stay where I am and any progress that's not, you know, perfectly in line with where I want to go. You know, that's that's the biggest way people constrain themselves is they take such a short term view of whatever they're doing that they can't see past the long term. What's, what's
2: been your best? And this is this is the truth, because most people don't want to buy into that strategy. How you how you how have you been able to convince people that to take that longer or bird's eye view of that approach? Like in, in what's the fastest way, I guess, that you found <laughs>
1: Um, the best way is if you can show them like somebody else who's exactly like them, who's done what you have wanted them to do, and they end up where they want to be, right? So that's one of the biggest tools we have is, you know, we've got thousands of clients yeah. data files, I can just send my clients like, this was you two years ago, and look where this person is now. This is what your journey is going to look like over the next 12 to 18 weeks. But if we can get through this, this is where it's going to be. And so I think end. a lot of it is just showing people that on the other side of this is where you want to be do you ever um message him after and be like boom
2: it's fucking science bro <laughs> because you can you have a phd or do you ever drop that like i'm a freaking phd dude you think i would tell you something that's not real like that's what no. you get the school for man like why don't you use it he's not laid he's not laid norton like, i
1: I try to avoid the I told you so as much as
2: possible. Would you would you pay for all that school for? That would be like the only reason I could get my PhD, just so I I could literally just make stuff up and be like, I'm right, like PhD. <laughs> 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 um sorry, I like the crack jokes. Being so involved, so we're talking science, but you're involved in a lot of current research, especially with nutrition. Where do you feel a lot of this? science or research is going to progress over the next several years and kind of the big implications i want to say on fat loss but kind of the greater nutrition fitness world
1: um i can tell you where i'll, I'll give you two answers i'll tell you where i think it's going to go um, and i'll tell you where i want it to go yeah. and they are very very divergent <laughs> so i think i think we're going to spend a lot of time um, chasing down a lot of like, now that we have new technology right that's Everybody just wants to use new technology because it's sexy, it's cool, it's got big words. I think we're going to spend a lot of time going down the kind of nutrigenomics path, right? We're going to be doing a lot of DNA typing and RNA sequencing and, and trying to, like, you know, match diet to individual people. And I think we're going to probably spend half a billion dollars over the next 10 years trying to figure that out. And I think it's going to tell us very, very little um, <laughs> about what's actually going to help people. Yeah, And so that's that's one of my big fears, um, and I think that's where we're going to go, but I don't think it's going to be super fruitful. And then the s- second I, piece oh, – Can go I ahead. pause you there? So
0: let's, let's hit on that DNA testing because we see a lot of social media people talking about uh, DNA testing for dietary type, and I'm a little skeptical of this sort of stuff. There are definitely fitness professionals selling this. And of course, there's a financial incentive behind promoting these sort of ideas. What is the current state right now of DNA testing in terms of its value? It's validity. Yeah, it's validity. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So there's kind of a few ways to think about it. One is, you know, right now we have some very, very preliminary ideas of specific, you know, we'll call them, we call them SNPs, right? Single nucleotide polymorphisms that are associated with, gene expression, um, that can be tied to some part of metabolism. Now, what we know about that currently is that is not very predictive of how your body responds to any dietary intervention, right? I mean, it's, I mean, we're talking any single one has maybe one to 5% at most of explanatory value. Now, all of them combined, like, let's say you took a whole panel um, even that right now is very, very small. So if I kind of like rank, rank a hierarchy and put like all the things I know about nutrition and results is nutrigenomics is so far down the totem pole, I don't even, I wouldn't even consider having any of my clients tested for it. And that's where uh, it's going to lead to where you
2: want it to go. Yeah. Because <laughs> you just told so, us what you think about where it's going <laughs> with a round of a <laughs> Um
1: So what I would rather see is spending – more time energy and money on the structure of society right and how do we change how do we change our food environment how do we change what we value how do we change our approach to to food Um, how do we change our approach to physical activity i think those things are what pay off Um, i think the you know the focus on some of these really hyper focused molecular basis of this stuff is not going to get us where we need to go I mean, there's going to be a lot of money made in Silicon Valley, there's going to be a lot of biotech companies that raise a lot of money, and CEOs get some fat paychecks off of it, um, but I, you know, personally, I don't know if it's mm. going to really tell us a whole lot from the big problems we have.
2: Can you kind of speak a little bit to, like, even some of the specifics of those foundational changes that even even give us, like, one or two examples, just because I'm trying to piece it together. I kind of get what you're saying, but I just want some specifics and what you think would be <laughs> ideal
1: yeah, so I'll maybe start with an anecdote and like a story of mine that kind of got me thinking on this. So when when I was in college, you know, I heard a lot about this idea of like the food desert piece, right? Of you know, there's places in the world where accessing you know good actual food um, is really difficult, and I was like, no, oh, that's that's a bunch of baloney. It's just about effort. People just don't care. Um, and then I spent a week in Indiana um, at the university, the medical school there, doing some training. And, like, I flew in, I got a rental car, and I was like, I'm going to go to the grocery store so I can get some food for the week. And I went into a grocery store. This was, like, just outside of Indianapolis, kind of in a lower socioeconomic neighborhood. And there was literally, like, two bags of lettuce, an apple, and one banana, like, in the whole store. And the rest of it was, you know, rice canned soup, spam, you know, boxed everything. Um, and so when you start to look at these pockets of the world who have obesity issues, who have diabetes issues is this food culture around there is so different from what it should be. Um, and so I think, you know, when I talk about kind of restructuring, you know, the whole underbelly is how do we start to shift our food choices in, in stores? How do we start to change how restaurants approach food? How do we change our family interactions to approach food? Like, the, the amount of people who eat out versus eat at home today versus 30 years ago, and how many people have family meals today versus 30 years ago. Um, you know, it's all those pieces that are really what drive a lot of what we see.
2: I agree. I, and I feel like I'm such a pessimist, but it's just like I get exactly what you're saying, and I know exactly why they do it. It's just because that's what's incentivized Like the companies. Like even when we talk about big industry and stuff is that how do you convince them that being better makes money?
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? Because well, then it'll change the bottom. It's, well, it's fucked. I, I think, mean I also think about like my own hypocrisy in this too, right? Is if I think about like, okay, what do I need to do to like make my life so I can do those things is I'd have to work less. I'd have to, you know, not worry about making as much money. I'd have to – you know, prioritize family and being home and, you know, cooking meals versus trying to be successful, da, 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 right? And so we're basically pushing our individual narratives and our society narratives away from what's optimally healthy. And we have to decide as a society, uh, what do we value more? And it's very clear currently what we value more.
2: Since we're on technology, just is there anything that you can see in the future that would help Create change in that direction via technology? And that might be a loaded or an unknown question, but I'm just thinking like ways of making things more efficient or productive in that sense.
1: You know, there's we're starting to get some inklings, you know, things like, you know, this is kind of a dumb example, but things like HelloFresh or Blue Apron, right, where you can start to get a little more convenience packaged with a little more health and a little more somebody else is doing the conscious thinking of how you can approach healthy food and making it convenient for you. Um, And I think we're starting to try to do those things. So, you know, those are the types of things that Mm -hmm. we can kind of use to say, okay, we've gone so far down this path, we're never going to go fully backwards. Um, But how can we take the new technology and tools we have and start to build in some of these principles from from what was a more healthy society and bringing them into the current day. I think
0: you're also gonna see, we are starting to see now more home delivery of groceries. Uh, Costco, I just saw something, they announced oh? that they're gonna be doing home home delivery. Oh my God, that's gonna change my life because that's- probably trip-
2: do that in the States. Canada
0: yeah. Yeah, just gets behind. So, and then what you have is the ability that people still have to choose these foods, but you have the ability to deliver to you and take that trip out of your day or week or whatever. Uh, to bring more of that healthy food at home. You still have to choose that food, but at least it's got to be a big convenience there. I know that- No rice a No rice I'm far from uh, you know an abnormal average person in how I approach nutrition compared to what's walking around and the people who are trying to help. But even still, I know that's going to be a big game changer for me. Uh, it's going to make me more time efficient. And if I can actually quite literally check off a list of things that I want and order it. And even further into the future, because we keep talking about this, this is something that's going to be real. Our, fridge, our fridges will be stocked with sensors, and as we get low on the eggs and whatever other things that we program in there, those things will get ordered. It's mean, Amazon, man, Amazon's going to be delivering that shit in drones. <laughs>
2: as but I time think that that's re- that's a real. That's not like fucking oh, this is in the future. Like I think that's are actually fine. Th- There's testing out delivery for food via their freaking drones, correct? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and there's that whole debate about giving Amazon the ability to open your door and come into your house, which I think freaks a lot of people out. But let them in, right? the doors are open
2: here? I don't know about you. I'd
0: like to see what my cat does to one of the drones if it flies into the house.
2: Okay, a lot of a lot of what we're talking about really comes down to, like you said, foundational stuff. But the essence of what we're doing is trying to help people find happiness, and we could easily argue that most people go about it wrong. From your vantage point, your experience what do you feel is the most important piece of the puzzle for people to find happiness and fulfillment and kind of link it back to all the stuff we're talking about
1: here? So if we kind of take it from the lens of like our health and fitness industry um, and, you know, one of the sayings, this might tie in a little bit of, you know, we sometimes we say to our clients is you can't hate yourself lean. And, And I kind of use that as, you know, you can't rely on, some external goal, some sort of thing you're chasing to drive your happiness is, you know, you've you've got to kind of start internally with that piece, um, and you know, a lot of that comes down to just how you view yourself and and how you approach, you know, what actually matters to you in life, and so you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of the books and a lot of the conversation is like, you know, ten. 10 ways to optimize your life to be happy and it talks about like morning rituals and all this stuff and all these you know whatever it is or all these external pieces which are tools you can use to kind of help change the way you think about things but I think a lot of it just comes down to you know your own internal monologue of happiness and I think so much of the issues that we have right now are we don't spend a lot of time with that internal monologue. Like, think about your daily life of how often are you kind of alone in your thoughts and actually think about who you are as a person? I mean, I mean, it's literally 24 hours a day, external messages telling you about how you should be. Yeah, and we, we, it's funny enough,
2: we literally talked about this probably for an hour with Nick Sorrell.
1: <laughs> Just
2: about that idea of happiness and problems. And even you, you mentioned people being. Happy with their bodies and all that stuff, and what are they really? What's the real problem behind the real problem, and who are they really? And it kind of goes down to fishing that out, but that's a hard thing to do. That makes sense.
1: It's a it's
2: (laughs) an inner monologue because people don't want to they don't want to know what that is a lot of the time. That's why they don't. That's why they do all these things to not feel those things. I like what
0: Brad said about you know like we got all this external stuff coming at us. We're so interconnected. Um, I've read a few books that sort of talk about even just like taking five to ten minutes when you first wake up in the morning to sort of pause, don't reach for the email, don't reach for the device. Some people say meditate or just like think about your day, what have you. That could actually be a really amazing exercise for some people. And even I find, like just my mind lately, especially with how busy everything's been, my mind is just busy and cluttered. And it's always like, all right, I got to knock down this, That I got to knock down this, I got to do this stuff. And then by the end of the day, when I get home, Um, It's like, I don't have much time cooking or whatever the hell I'm trying to do for the next day. And it's like, okay, got to go to bed. You feel like you want to squeeze in a little relaxing time. But maybe we would be better off if we actually thought about some of that relaxing time as some time away from the console, away from the TV or the video games or, or the devices. And actually just introspectively think about what's going on with you inside your own
1: head. So. I mean, like how much time do you spend working on like you, right? Even when you're, you're reading self-help books and you're trying to do, you know, you're working out at the gym, all this kind of stuff is that's still all external, right? Like how much time do you spend like thinking about you in your head and like, okay, here's who I am. Here's how I respond to things. Here's what I think about myself. Here's why I think about these things. Here's how I can change those things. I would say most of us spend zero time doing that.
2: And I would, I would, I'll we'll continue on that piece just because you have a business around this kind of stuff. Have you been finding like getting people to answer those questions has had a deeper success with some of, I guess, your weight loss
1: clients, so to speak? Yeah. You know, what? two things. Um, and this is one area we're still trying to figure out as a business is. Yeah. That internal monologue is really key for people's long-term success, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's pretty obvious, I yep. think, to all of us. Um, but what that does do is that that forces people into, you know, a decision of is is this who I am and what I want to do, or am I just going to cut tail and run, right? Yep. So it's like you've got, you know, you've got. Thousand clients, mm-hmm. and you and you force these. You know, normally they would just kind of hang on, they'd stay around for six months, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but if you kind of force the issue and say, "Okay, we got to deal with this," you got to have this conversation with yourself. Now, start people are like, "Well, I can't, I can't hide anymore. I got to go." Yeah. Uh, and so you know, you kind of play that battle too. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very, you know, it's it's one of those things where you can either be a patch job and a band aid. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the Fitbit or the MyFitnessPal, or you can really try to address the underlying issues.
2: And I like that a lot because I think that, like you said, people get to a point if you're working with them and trying to inch them towards long-term success is if they really want to understand the things that they understand for long-term success. Now, I want to tie this into science and kind of your background. Have you found, this is going to be hard to tie this in, not scientific research because there's obviously scientific research on psychology, but have you found anything that ties in science of that aspect of it into long-term success dieting? Does that make sense? Uh, and I I know that's really hard because it's probably (laughs) new and blah, blah, blah,
1: blah. Has it been empirically validated?
2: Empirically. Sorry. I'm trying to use scientific terms, but yeah,
1: I think it's, I think it's one of those scenarios where Mm. if, if you kind of line up all the logic in your head, it's like, well, this is a slam dunk, right? Um, but I don't think anybody's ever actually tested that because one, how do you test that? You like so? I, I can't imagine taking a study of a lot of people and like doing deep psychotherapy with them and like quantifying where yeah. their mental state is and trying to track their diet long term. I, well, I, I would, I will never sign up to do that study.
2: And I knew that <laughs> I, I'm glad that was your answer. Cause that's what I assume. How could technology Possibly piece some of that together, and that's an honest question because that's kind of where things should go logically if you think about it. But is there ever going to be a time, point in time, where that could be something?
1: So that's one of my big, um, my existential crisis in doing all this. Right? Is technology drives people the opposite way? Mm -hmm. Right? Is it drives them to all this external stuff of here's data, here's numbers, do this, do that. You know, get up at this time, do this workout, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so, how do we? Pair that with trying to change the human element too. Yeah, That's hard, man.
2: Because we're agreeing that that's where it needs to go, but then you're a scientist. <clears throat> All right. Yeah. Let's, and let's... we have
1: we have almost no answers in this area. Fuck, man. Let, Jesus. Let's take, was... let's take that word
0: agreement. <clears throat> so, um, <laughs> our industry, I, Brad, I saw you comment on this, Dean. Um, our industry recently had a collective aneurysm. Arguing about burpees. So Dean Somerset did a post about it. it someone else did some before that. Sam there was Spinelli. A, Sam Spinelli. Our, there, was a, there was an article, I think it was reshared, And then you did a post. So everybody was basically just having this meltdown over it. And I saw people that I like and respect arguing with each other. And I saw some snide shit. I'm like, what the hell? Okay. So <laughs> our industry loves arguing over trivialities. It's not new. Uh, but for the most part, our corner industry, corner of the industry agrees on most things. What are some critical nutritional concepts that we our industry really does agree on, I mean, excluding the charlatans who are selling bullshit, but that people can actually feel pretty safe about? Is there anything that foundational pillars that people can say, yes, this is as close to certain as we can say? Mostly true.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of, I would say most things are agreed upon and I mean, things like calories really matter. Right. That's, that's the big driving factor. Anybody who doesn't agree with that, um, has, is completely missed the boat, right? Like they, <laughs> they up. had the opportunity to jump on the lifeboat in the Titanic and they pulled the, uh, I'm just going to go down because it's, I'm the captain of the ship. Right. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's number one. The other one that's become very clear is almost all diets will work. Right. Is it, I mean, it doesn't really matter what your macronutrient profile is. I mean, even large deviations don't really tend to have a big difference when it comes to body weight loss. Um, that's one. You know, another one is. Oh, how do how do I word this? There are no real specific diets that are optimal for reducing disease risk, right? I mean. Chronic diseases, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, um, obesity, <laughs> diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. The exact nutrient profile you consume does not have substantial changes in risk. Right? There's there's minor risk changes based on you know the exact type of fats you consume, the exact type of carbohydrates, the exact type of proteins. But the relative changes in risk are still pretty small, right? And the cumulative quality of your diet is you know it matters quite a bit
0: a uh, old friend of mine um was really weird i had posted a status recently about what people thought would be the next fad diet to come around because sort of keto is the big one right now and uh, it was sort of the tail end of all the comments because there were tons but one guy got in there and sort of a, a righteous sort of thing about paleo and keto and how they they did all this sort of stuff for um some sort of intolerances and whatnot. And he, of course, this is an argument ensued, and he cherry picked one study that didn't seem like it was even calorie control that supposedly proved that paleo was better for uh, reducing metabolic syndrome, which wasn't related to his original point. So you see some of this sort of stuff, but again, people like to, to pick things that fit their ideology about stuff, but, I, and I was pretty sure it was, People like was to
2: bullshit. argue, man. <laughs> So, this is funny. We're talking about, like, what to be true and people arguing over shit and blah, blah, blah. Dean didn't even post an argument. He's like, oh, what's this whole thing about burpees? And everyone interjected. Can like, they do that with nutrition?
0: Well, Dean's a shit disturber like that. He's very good at not necessarily taking a hard stance on some stuff and setting it loose and then seeing what the hell happens. Let's, he pours gas all over. Let's ask
2: head. this. Do you ever... and? Maybe we should check back through Facebook. Do you ever get fired up about shit and like get in arguments? <laughs> he doesn't seem to. I got what I've noticed. Um, you seem like a guy who doesn't, but you're like saying in your head, or you'll say it behind their back.
1: <laughs> so this is this this will be funny. So I would say, as my life has progressed, the amount of time I spend arguing with people on Facebook has plummeted. Yeah. Uh, just because I have, I mean, other shit's more important to me. You grew right? up, man. Um, but I do spend. Here's how I handle it: is whenever I see things that fire me up, I go in there, I write a response. <laughs> And then I delete it before I hit enter. <laughs> I and I feel that. immensely better. And I'm like, God, the catharsis is real. But Now I don't have to get okay, involved. In this answer shit this. I want
2: to hear stories. Kate, okay, You're thinking back to when you were in college because you probably thought you were really smart before you had a PhD. You probably know way more than you did then or now. Did you get in any arguments that you can kind of think of You're like, fuck, I'm an idiot? I know <laughs> you did because we're like at the same oh. age. So Facebook would have been blowing up. And that's when people got on there and like just argued with everyone. They want to be smart. Tell us why. Just tell oh, us why.
1: Oh, man. Let's see. Um, I remember, and this was on my my website, is um, Feynman, one of the low-carb guys, had a big comment on my, on my, my website, like in what? the comment section. And I spent like six hours going back and forth with this guy. <laughs> and then like the next morning, I woke up and I was like, oh, my God, that accomplished absolutely nothing. <laughs> so since then, I have not allowed – I've like – I, I have, I should pull it up. I think I have like 17,000 comments waiting on my website that I just haven't even approved. I just don't allow comments anymore because I'm like, I'm just not going there. Are you? Are
2: you he's a PhD, he's your doctor. Anyone ever give you like a good nickname? Because Dr. Spencer Nadalski had someone go on his Instagram and call him Dr. Fuckwad.
0: <laughs> That's what we titled no. this episode. Spencer, actually, anyone who's listening to this episode, especially who uh, is really into the nutritional side and, and the disease side, stuff like that, go and check out the Spencer one. Or if you haven't ever heard of Dr. Spencer Dulski, which is ludicrous, uh, go check this guy out because he's brilliant. And
2: One more question about this shit do you and and be honest do you found that going up through that and arguing and stuff did you get smarter through that situation and not that it wasted time but like I think Alan Aragon's like I that's how I got the smartest is I had to go argue with people and I went fucking figured out the shit so
1: I could beat them <laughs> you know I'm a I'm a big believer in you learn when you're listening you don't learn when you're talking um so I, like I spend like, I will go read these things, but I don't really chime in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's just my personality. But you know, watching and listening to people have debates and arguments um, is super helpful. You know, for me, I find being <clears throat> in the middle of them are not super instructive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because they, it's people won't tell you this, but when you, you're in an argument with somebody, no matter who you are, no matter how educated you are, no matter how open-minded you are. Your subconscious is protecting your ego, oh, and you're absolutely. always, always, always going to find the way to defend your point that you brought up a priori, right? So you're just going to do – no matter how good you are, you're going to spend all your energy trying to prove your point, um, and – so I find, for me, going and reading those things can be super helpful. Being in the trenches in them, not helpful at yeah, all. Your cool. dude
2: of Bradle will just f- like fulfill its bias. Because it, mm-hmm. once you get there, you don't even know. You can't get out.
0: Nick Tuminello was another speaker at, in Spokane, and, and we talked, and hopefully we'll be able to get him on in not-too-distant future. He said he'd like to do it. Uh, he really blew me away with crystallizing a thought about you know arguing with people on the internet. And he really doesn't do much of this anymore. He'll have private conversations with people he respects, but he said that if you're responding to trolls and, and critics and really engaging in deep debates, especially if you're trying to convince them of your point of view, well, first of all, those are not paying clientele. And you are communicating to your paying clientele that the best way to get your attention and to engage you and to learn from you is to not pay you but to troll on your social media and comments and you devote a lot of your time and energy into that instead of actually taking your time and energy into people fucking paying you for your services it's like holy shit that makes a ton of sense so i think that's a good thing for anyone who's an, who is a fitness professional to think about when you are drawn into a lot of these arguments and again like you said they're a fucking time sink and a complete waste
2: of time i don't do it FYI. Yeah. i just want to ask I'm you now or I'm, I'm what you are and I was just, I just like listening.
0: He wants a PhD too, Brad. I think he's probably going to like <laughs> no, I, start I, I think being I'm more Brad-like <laughs> in his interactions with the world just watch. Yeah,
1: I, uh, you know, kind of going on this topic of people like contacting on social media. This <laughs> morning, my phone rang and it was a number that I didn't know and I usually don't answer it, but it was from uh, like the same area code as the NIH, so I answer it and then, this is the first time this has ever happened. Somebody called my phone from an article they had read on my website, mm-hmm. and they said, hey, I have a question. Why do pretzels make my mouth taste sour? And I was <laughs> no. just like, what? <laughs> so it's just like Did that kind answer? of stuff. I'm just like, Did you answer it, it? we live in a bizarre world. I said, you know what? I have no idea. Why don't you send me an email, and we'll see what we can figure out. But I was just like, we live in such a strange world that those are the types of conversations we have with people.
2: My phone is ringing. Okay.
1: Turn it on. It's probably the same
2: guy. He probably was like,
0: I see... <laughs> Why pretzels? Well, shit like this happens. Like I was, um, I, I told this somewhere. I hope I didn't tell us in the podcast already, but I got a phone call from Yemen. And nothing good is coming out of Yemen, let's be honest. So, it, And I looked at the number and it's like, all right, this is a scam thing. I've heard of this stuff. And so I'm chatting with my best friend via text. And then it turns around that like an hour later, sends me a screenshot. And sure enough, she got a... M- Same phone call from the same fucking number. An hour later, out of Yemen, it was the weirdest fucking thing. So,
2: what does that have to do with pretzels in the morning? It has to do with phone calls. Okay, Uh, (laughs) it was. It's probably that same person. They're just getting through the the network. Someone wouldn't answer the question. You didn't answer it. It's going to. He's going to phone James Krieger now. Yeah, you should have gave all. That's what you should have did. I should have said, "Here's James's number." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay, so hit them up with the yeah, smart one.
0: We're at the point now where we need a sponsorship from like Chapters, which is a Canadian book company, or Barnes and Noble, or Audible uh, for all the books that we talk about. Do you have a memorable book that you found personally relevant uh, to share with us? It's really about me because I just want books, but if the I know the audience likes the books too.
1: No science um, books. I mean, I read such a random variety of books, uh, and kind of. I'm one of those people where it's like, I don't have one thing in my life that's ever like stood out, but there's always things that are very contextually appropriate. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, you know, some of the, probably two of the biggest books that have had an impact on me over the last couple of years. Um, and it's been more related to like, you know, trying to build a large business and dealing with all the stuff that comes with it is um, extreme ownership was really good. Uh, you know, just more, more along the lines of, you know, trying to take as much control and ownership over things as possible. Um, you know, I think at least for me, when I was growing up, a lot of a lot of my approach was things are not my fault, um, and so I think that was a really good eye-opening book. You know, for a lot of reasons. I mean, whenever you help run a, a large business, you know, shit hits the fan every day, and you've kind of got two approaches: is you can own it, you can solve it, or you can say not my problem. Um, the other one would be. The obstacle is the way by Ryan Holiday. Yeah. Um, yes. you know it, that that might be cliche, but it's always a, a good reminder of,
2: you know, bigger. two things.
1: Is is one, you know, <laughs> the joke of you know having a boat that you retire on is that's not really what yeah. life is all about, right? Like life is really about tackling <laughs> obstacles um, and understanding that your real joy in life comes from tackling those obstacles. Uh, and the other really key message from that book is. With each obstacle you pass, the next one just gets harder, right? And so you don't really ever get to a point where as you kind of knock down these goals and get these obstacles out of the way and you you know, move forward, problems don't get easier. Problems get harder and more complex, and you each time have to rise to some new level to try to challenge it. So, I mean, like when I started out and I had two private clients – You know, the issues there were different when I had 10 versus when, you know, you're running a, you know, multi six figure dollar company, right? Like just the substantial issues you face along each step of the way get incrementally bigger. And if you can kind of put your mindset into as soon as I tackle this one, I'm going to be faced with the next big one, it kind of helps you handle a lot of the stuff that comes along your way and gets dropped on your plate.
2: That was one of the ones like, if I think back to, like, if people ask me stuff or if I give it unsolicited advice all the time, um, I'll refer to that one a lot because it's, it's a very simple message, but it applies contextually to almost every context you could even think of. You know what I mean? <coughs> and it's a good way to reframe people's brains when they, they are upset about an obstacle or something in their way and you just reframe it and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And it makes sense. I think that's the best reason why that book's awesome because it makes logical sense, really
0: it's um it's one of what I call my core four books i recommend it to everybody everybody <clears throat> should read that book i read it at a critical time when i was transitioning my career moving from being an employee of a large gym chain to working privately and some of the crap that expedited my move turns out to be some of the, and it was ridiculous bullshit, but it was actually the best thing that ever happened. I'm super glad, despite the discomfort of it at the time, because it kicked me into doing something that has been so much better. So guys, like those two books and Extreme Ownership, I totally buy it. Exactly the same thing you did. The more ownership you will take over you being responsible for your clients, for everything that goes on around you, the more control you'll exert over it. And for the people listening who are more of our enthusiasts, If you spend all your time blaming the world, oh, it's I, I can't do this because it's this, blah, 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 that's a good road to failure in the grand scheme of things. If you will take ownership, I don't like saying blame, but if you will accept, hey, I'm responsible for the things that have happened to me, I am responsible for where I currently am in life, then you have the ability to turn around and say, I can be responsible for my decisions to affect the future outcome. And that is a good place to start. To see positive changes, if you want to lose weight,
1: Andrew likes that book, FYI. Oh, well, they're both. Yeah, it's kind of like just a, a control and a power thing, right? Is if you take, if you kind of take ownership or responsibility of the situation you're in, you can do something about it, right? But if you decide it's it's not under your control, then you can't do anything about it, right? So even if you're in, you know, you're in a bad environment, um, you know, you've got an abusive family or you know anything like that is you're like okay i don't have control or responsibility over the situation but i do have control and responsibility over how i decide to get out of the situation or how i decide to move forward and i think that's one of the big things too is you know it's not just about taking blame for everything it's it's more of owning the situation and kind of taking control of it cool guys
2: you're gonna love those so read them where can our audience find you? So if someone wants to consume all stuff you, work with you, understand and realize how smart you are, where, where, where is that place for Brad?
1: Uh, I'm probably one of the most easily accessible people on the yeah, planet. Can you, I guess. Uh, you know, our our coaching <laughs> business is eat 2 You can go there. Um, we have a ton of blog articles. Uh, you can sign up. We give everybody a two-week free trial. Um, so you know, anybody can just come in and sign up, and then the you can find my writing at Science Driven Nutrition. So that's kind of my you know specific blog where I write a lot of my own thoughts and ideas. And uh, you can find me on PubMed for all my research stuff, and then Facebook you can find me. I spend virtually zero time on Twitter just because I find it largely unhelpful and an intellectual cesspool. So, um, but those are the those are the places you can find me.
0: Oh, there's a ton of great sound bites from this one. Uh, <clears throat> good thing we've already picked the title of it. There's so many. We to call this t- uh, episode "Intellectual Cesspool." In fact, I'm almost tempted.
2: We uh, we we've been lately tying things into movie references, and we got a good one for you. Um, yes. Should we tell him? I lived my life in movies. Do you, do you like Back to the Future? Mm. Look like you're our age ish.
1: Oh yeah, okay. I grew up on that right. movie. Okay. So
0: we're probably gonna call it "Jacked into the Future," and I'm gonna splash your face over Marty McFly looking at his watch. So that'll be your graphic. We've had a lot that of really would good be ones because awesome. the James Krieger one was sweet. You, you saw that one, right? The that Bond one was went,
2: really good.
0: Yeah, that that one went really well. You look
2: more like a Bond, though. He totally does look more like a Bond no, no, than Krieger does. Yo, yeah, yeah, like we fucked that one up. <laughs> Damn it. Not to say yeah, Krieger's not as beautiful. But James, so yeah, you have a more
1: marketable Bond look. <laughs> But we made them uh, feel powerful, I'm sure. All right. So if somebody <laughs> listening to this wants to sponsor me with an Aston Martin, I would not be upset. We'll just leave it at that. Well, you know, Walter, Man, you just told us that's not what life's about. A
0: Walter PPK will show up in the being. mail instead. <laughs> cool. I guess that's it. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for uh, tuning into this one and enjoy it. this. You could hear it our voices. This one was a lot of fun. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for coming on. This been a blast. I, when when I asked Brad about coming on here, and it was actually James Krieger that said, "Hey, you got to get Brad on here." He was super stoked and excited about it, and you can tell like with certain people, like they're just so like, yeah, like I really want to do this. Let's like that, it up. that is cool. Like that means a lot because like we just got this little outfit and um, you know started it with no big ambitions for anything, and they, our download numbers have actually been kind of ludicrous. So uh, that's been fun, and hopefully continues to grow. And for everybody listening who. You know, started with us and just finding Brad. Seriously, go go follow some of his stuff. It might resonate with you. He's really brilliant. He's nowhere near as like pushing his, himself out there as he should be <clears throat> because he's got so much you know, smart and good stuff to say. So a lot of times the, the loudest voices aren't always the best in our industry. Some some of them are great, but most of the time, a lot of the people are really high profile. They're not the ones that are going to help you provide the quality of it or knowledge. So... You don't follow the people that we're bringing on here. You know, we're very careful in who we select for this podcast. uh, And the people on this podcast can probably change your life if you listen closely to them. So thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, if you like what you see, subscribe to us. Uh, Five-star reviews are amazing on iTunes. And uh, we'll say goodbye now. Yeah, take
2: it easy. Shut
1: up up and sit sit down. down. down.